0: We'll be getting started in just a moment so it's a great time to start getting questions into the chat window for our moderators to review and copy over to me so we can jump right into the Q&A. If we don't have a chance to get your questions today, feel free to leave them in the comments section on the video and I'll try to get them a while after the show, or visit any of our social media sites like Reddit and Facebook to continue the discussion with me or the other audience members. And let's get started. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our show. We're gonna go ahead and get started with questions in just a second. While we're getting ready to get started here, please get your questions into the moderators in as legible a format as you can so they can get them transferred over to me. Uh, if you're not too clear on that, there's usually a lag time, about 10 to 15 minutes on a question actually reaching me as we go through them. And our moderators pick them out from the chat window, put them over to me on our Discord server, and then I give them an order, basically. So please try to keep those clear and concise. Uh, we had our first question from Ryakin, was asking if we were going to be covering threats to uh, people in the future or not, and we did actually recently do the um, threats to interplanetary and interstellar civilizations, and um, I don't know if we're going to follow that up anytime too soon with anything more detailed than that, but uh, I think you know, we do actually cover a lot of threats to civilizations, which just that late filters episode for instance, but so often the kind of threats we'd have to be looking at would be things we wouldn't be expecting uh, what we call it uh out of context problem or ocp or a black swan a uh, black swan being one where it's really obvious in hindsight and we and we did an episode on that some years back um where the problem is really obvious in hindsight but you don't see it till afterwards and then an ocp an out of context problem is one where you have no context whatsoever for dealing with it it just comes out of the blue and really the best you can do is kind of uh crisis management of being used to handling crazy scenarios. So we probably will look at some more of those in the future, we have looked at quite a few, but uh, it's kind of hard to say which ones we'd be looking at dealing with because we just don't really know what those problems will be. Uh, Faber Ferrarius asks, Isaac, you said a couple of times that Warhammer 40k did some science better than other sci-fi universes. C- can you advise on top three things Warhammer 40k universe did right? Uh, Warhammer 40k, for those of you who don't know, is a uh, a, well, was a tabletop board game that kind of turned into a, um, uh, quite a big setting, uh, what we call an expanded universe setting. And um, one of the things they get right there in a setting that is essentially a dystopian future um, that's very crazy and full of supernatural stuff is that they get the scale of time and uh, civilization a lot better than most sci-fi shows do. Um, and to some degree, it's when you're writing a book on something, just one novel or one movie, you really can't ever convey scope to the same degree. Like in the Star Wars films, we see the uh, sheer size of the fleets getting engaged with each other, and that gives us a bit of an idea how big these empires are. But uh, one of the things that 40, 40K does really well is just to kind of indicate what it'd be like if you actually had a civilization that not only was composed of a million worlds, but had actually been grinding along for ten thousand years. And uh, that's kind of the big one. there. they get the numbers of scales right. They don't well to some degree anyway. They start recognizing that if you got a big old hive city, that means there's a trillion people on that planet, not a few hundred you know million. Um, they kind of get the notion right that uh, you know you would not have fleets of a ship or two uh, like in Deep Space Nine. Uh, one of the first ones they could really have the CGI that lets you see um, real fleets in action. Until then, they were limited to like one or two models they could put on this camera. You start getting the impression, oh wow, the the Federation of Planets, which covers a decent chunk of the galaxy, happens to have you know an actual fleet. Um, but even then, the scale is not that big. You get the impression there's less than one ship per, per uh, solar system they control. And that's one of those things that probably needs to be blamed on CGI, but a lot of times just because the sci-fi writers aren't really thinking of the scale. you know. Um, Peter Stoyova asks, assuming our knowledge of cosmology is actually missing a black swan type okay knowledge, say hyperspace or something else, how do we think about go about discovering it? How do you go about, to, well, ironically, if something is a black swan, you pretty much by definition can't discover it in advance because if you, if you knew what it was or knew how to go about getting it, so you, you, you wouldn't be a black swan. As an example, the cell phone is not a black swan. Uh, we knew those were coming quite a long way out. Uh, The exact format they take was, uh, hard to say, but um, the black swan would be stuff like uh, social media. That was quite a black swan. Um, uh, Things like Netflix, for instance, are very limited economic black swan. Computers in general were a black swan, Um, while totally robotic automation was not, because we saw that one coming quite a ways out. In hindsight, these things make perfect sense. We understand completely why why they took off, but in, in advance, we really did not. Um, <clears throat> something like hyperspace. First, you have to have some kind of lead to let you know where it is. You can't try to force discover something that you don't know if it even exists. Um, you know, in terms of basic theory or setup. If we came across something that was a, a mystery, this happens with science. You don't go out looking for it. You, if you have something, you try to figure out what it's causing. But otherwise, we mostly come across these things when we do an experiment and in some environment uh, or in the main experiment itself something's not quite right, it's not coming out quite to the model. But the model seems to work and so we start trying to run it in different places and uh, see what little differences are popping up and try to run down what is causing this difference. And I don't know how we would detect something like hyperspace because we don't know what it is, if it exists or, or where it might be located or what it operates on. We'd have to find some way of you know finding a natural effect of it that was already in our universe. Um, Selkith Morago asks, Isaac, what are some things you do what what are some things do you think should be required things to try to keep realistic when in sci-fi? And not and light travel. That's the most common hand wave in science fiction, but it's unfortunately a kind of a necessary hand wave, either the communication or the physical side. Now you could do a lot in a setting by just sticking to one solar system. You can never really exhaust the options of a single planet. Most fiction is written on modern-day Earth. But um, you know, something like a Dyson Swarm uh, could be a setting for millions of books and not even barely scratch the surface. You could set an entire galaxy inside one. Um, but uh, if you're trying to do interstellar stuff, you usually do have to start doing a hand wave. Now, not everyone does. Alistair Reynolds, for instance, doesn't do that. Um, Adenosie <clears throat> Taylor does do it with communications, uh, but he doesn't do it for um, uh, travel, for instance, and that works out very well. But it takes a little bit of extra effort. I'd say the next big one that I wish authors would stop doing and going back to the 40K reference is um, getting their skills right. Um, you could have a, a planet that was colonized by only a few million people or even thousands of people, but you shouldn't have a planet that's been sitting there for you know, hundreds of years as a regular trade hub and it's just got one city somewhere with no you know, it, one unique culture that is really not seen anywhere else on the planet, or um, everyone's got the same attitude. It, it becomes very undercolored. It's It's, the, the you know, the basic sketches there, but the author didn't really fill in the stuff. And, of course, that depends on the author and how much time they want to spend on that place. But um, it tends to make the places seem kind of small. When you're trying to go for big and epic, you need to actually show people big and epic. Otherwise, on the realism side, I guess it would just be that... Uh, it would be nice if some of them actually bothered to look some signs up first. <laughs> Thank you, Morve Johnson. Could bounty hunting be a real thing? Oh, that's what The Mandalorian just came out. Uh, could bounty hunting be a real thing? With so much space to expand into, any rock with a spinning wheel can be, commu- can be a community to hide in. It doesn't make sense to hire long-distance criminal retrieval. There was a, uh, a anime called... Uh, um, Cowboy Bebop, where they did something very similar to that, too, uh, throughout the sources, and they were t- hunting down criminals who were going from this planet or station to another. Um, yeah, I mean, probably. I, I don't know that it would be quite as exciting as a film, but life really is as exciting as the films, We even go watch the films. Um, if you have criminals and they need to be tracked down, Someone presumably needs to do that job and needs to do it across jurisdiction lines, if there are jurisdiction lines. Um, I mean, it's a real thing nowadays. We have plenty of bounty hunting that goes on in the United States, and I imagine other countries too. Um, but uh, it's not usually going to be as glamorous as folks would tend to expect. Um, and uh, so probably no Boba Fett's in the future, but who can say on that? Um, Flintlocks asks, are cryptocurrencies a black swan? How do you t- How do you think cryptography will affect government and taxation? Um, cryptography itself, very little, <clears throat> um, in, except for the, in terms of investigating people's correspondence and until relatively recent times, nobody, you really couldn't track people's correspondence at all. Anyway, and taxes are not a new thing. And, um, you know, even keeping written copies of your, uh, business dealings was a pretty rare thing beyond the most broad terms until not even a century ago. It was, it was still pretty rare for anyone to actually keep much in the way of receipts or transfers or you know, bills of lading. Um, certainly electronic correspondence was another thing, and, and if you want to get access to that correspondence prior to the electronic era, your only option was to go get a warrant and search and grab those papers and read through them. Um, and so in that regard, cryptography is no different, you just tell the person that they have to open their files up, um, which you still have to get a warrant to do something like that. Now, um, in terms of cryptocurrency being a black swan, no, because most of the stuff we think, I mean it could be. but. Most things we'd anticipate uh, cryptocurrency disrupting are things we already anticipate. So again, it's if there's additional effects we don't see, that's that's the big central focus for a, a black swan. Um, the biggest disruption you would tend to have with cryptocurrency is that it, it makes it very hard to deal with black markets in terms of uh, intellectual property. Uh, you still have to actually ship stuff back and forth. But again, remember until you know, 30, 40 years ago, you could just hand somebody cash and... Uh, I mean, large quantities of it, it wasn't really tracked that well, and there wasn't really that much sochi of, of, of you know, freight trucks or, or postal things. So it's uh, a bit of a difference, but I don't think it's going to be one of those huge ones that knocks over civilizations. Um, Grand Admiral asks, do you think it's possible that a techno-primitivist ideology could be in the, could in the future, ban technology that even not not enough coffee today, excuse me. Do you think it's possible that a techno-primitivist ideology could in the future ban technology they deem dangerous, like AI, etc., and succeed at converting humanity into a technophobic civilization? No. Uh, You could to some degree do that, but we've never actually had a technophobic movement. Um, As we covered in that episode, um, even the Luddites, uh, the most notorious anti-technology group, are not anti-technology. And... uh, they were mostly worried about uh, labor regulations and, and in, in terms of automation in that, that period. Um, the Amish might be another example we'd look at, but I mean, I live in an area that has tons of Amish and many of them have cell phones. They're not all cross the anti-technology, they are against some of the applications of specific technologies or some of the cultural effects of convenience technology. Um, <clears throat> what you'd most likely see is technophobia where it had a justification. Like artificial intelligence, you might ban artificial intelligence, and you might ban associated technologies that made it much easier for somebody to actually um, create an AI in their home. We might see something like that with 3D printing, just because there are certain technologies that if they work as we kind of expect them to, or potentially could expect them to, it would just become so dangerous that anything that is, you know, using that technology, or is very close to allowing you to use that technology, you know, where you could just, you know, One extra step and there you are those are sort of things that might result in a general technology ban But I can't see us ever getting too uh, Anti-technological and there really have never been any civilizations that truly war That we're aware of I mean, there's quite a few that have not really embraced technology that much Um, The despair man asked do you think FTL is possible? I do not Um, FTL uh, is one of those things where eh, if we assume the universe runs on cause and effect without exception, you can pretty much write off faster light technology. Period. And there's really no way to play around with that. in In, in terms of violating an Einsteinian sense, uh, warp drives, for instance, technically do not violate them. But even then, every technology that uh, that we everything on paper we've ever done that might allow faster-than-light travel or communication always bumps into requiring something that we don't have, like negative matter and energy. And I know they occasionally like to release science articles saying that we've discovered something like that, but what the science article actually said was something that acts like we'd expect negative matter to act like in this one context. Uh, And even then, it's a very loose correlation. It really has nothing to do with that. Like when they say uh, a scientist makes black hole in lab. It's like, no, they made a substance that absorbs one frequency of light very, very well. Um, But in terms of FTL, I mean, see the FTL series for some discussion of that, and we'll Looking at a bit more in the time travel episode uh, that we're starting the year off with, I think that's January 2nd. Uh, KLC asks, Isaac, what's your favorite anime? Um, hmm, I'm not really a big anime watcher. Um, I was fond of the Death Note anime, and I think, what was another one? Hmm. There's been a few, but I'm, I'm not really a huge fan of that, of that particular genre. I think it's the animation that's <laughs> hard on the eyes. Some of them are, anyway. Um... Boshaw asks, what collaboration videos do you have planned in the near future and with whom? I think Christian from Launchpad Astronomy and I will plan to do a, 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 a collaboration sometime in the near future, though I had to get on, on delay um, for a bit. So that probably be, I don't know if that will be our next collab, but that's the only one currently on the radar to do. I should probably poke Joe or Cody or John to see if they feel like doing Ronald Frazier, but uh, we've just not been doing collabs as much. I think our last one was over the summer with Jade. And I do enjoy doing those, but usually I just kind of stick to our schedule and if someone asks me if they want to do, you know, do you want to do a collab, I'm all for it usually. So, um, let's see, Dr. flashborn asks, I've noticed you often assume that humanity will remain mostly as they are today. Don't you think that with AI revolutions, humanoids are about to disappear, whether they merge or get replaced? Uh, no and no, respectively. Um, I do not assume that humanity will remain mostly the same as they are today. It's just when we're discussing a topic in in the show, um, you're trying to make these things relatable to folks. And since I don't know exactly what the future might be like in that regard to to other things, I try to limit the changes to you know how we be living to just that one technology or two technologies on discussion for that day. So I would be rather surprised if humans didn't get a little bit more cyborgy or genetically engineered in the future. Um, I just don't think that's one of those things where it's going to happen overnight in uh, in an extreme fashion. No, no, uh, Kanunian sings or you know, super cyborgs running around punching through walls. Um, you know, the effect of dental fillings, which is a cybernetic alteration. Uh, or glasses. These are pretty big on our civilization, uh, but you can't really anticipate too much what those are gonna be. And if you're trying to keep something explainable, you, you limit what you're talking about. Even in our videos we only have 30 minutes. That's uh, longer than most videos. That's still a, a very short period of time to discuss a topic. So you try to limit the number of uh, tangents you include. As to whether or not I think we're actually going to just, you know get merged or replaced, I don't really see anything specifically replacing us um you want to be really careful using evolutionary guidelines for uh, talking about species getting replaced what we probably see is a big divergence in what qualifies as being human but even then, that's hard to say and you might have places where people are exactly like they are now uh who are not particularly techno primitives. they don't mess around with their uh, their brains much or their, their biology but they're happy to use technology other places people might you know uh do things to enhance their thinking speed, or um, you know, improve their DNA to get rid of any any types of uh, uh, health deficiencies, or even improve it to augment it with something new, like the ability to see infrared. And then you might have places where you decide they want to go all out, and they they were uh, totally uploaded minds, or they um, <clears throat> they decide they want to have four legs, you know, and, and walk around like a centaur, and they may or may not keep calling themselves human at that point in time. But, you know, we diverge. I mean, that's that's kind of what happens when you have a successful case. It diverges around and spreads out and, and, you know, it gets its new environments and mutates around. Rayakin um, asks, do you think super intelligent AI will replace politicians in the future? Um, you know, there's a, a joke I occasionally make on the show is that if you have a big AI like Skynet trying to take over the world, they're not going to do it by trying to bomb everyone. They'll do it by running for political office. Um, There's an assumption that a a machine, a a very intelligent machine, would somehow be bad at social interactions. Uh, That's a big chunk of what we use our brains for as humans, and that is absolutely a learnable trait. So um, I would expect a a very smart AI to be incredibly charismatic. Whether or not they'd replace politicians in the future, I don't know. Um, Some of them are already kind of robotic. Um, (laughs) Dave Blue asks, you often say the sun could power lasers that propel ships around, Wouldn't these beams harm objects crossing their paths and make the inner solar system hazardous for other activities? Um, You know, shining a flashlight around a lighthouse is potentially damaging to anyone who gets hit in the eyes with it. You have to be careful using something like that, but you're not likely to be concentrating these beams to the point that they could actually see our skin, for instance. You might, but you probably would not, Um, just because at that point they become a weapon, and when you get rid of a much thinner or larger sail, for instance, that might do the job just as well. Um, You also... Only need to push ships on the ecliptic when you're trying to move them around our solar system. Uh, very few of the objects that we want to be visiting in other solar systems would be on our ecliptic path, so in most cases you'd be aiming the beam up or down to some degree. But space is huge. Uh, it really is, is difficult to say how huge space is in any kind of sane context. Um, and I really can't imagine that you'd really have that much of an issue with hitting things, especially because everything would be running with an IFF of some sort. It's a control issue in terms of making sure everybody knows where everything is, and that's like aircraft controllers. There might end up being mistakes from time to time, but you coordinate to use as much computing power and detection as you reasonably can, and you try to avoid uh, letting that get clogged. But you know, just the pragmatist the and realist in me says there would be down to be at least some incident of, of accident or sabotage, and um. You know, you decide, is this worth it? Well, almost every good technology we have comes with something like that attached. So I'm not going to say it can't happen, but I suspect that it probably uh, would not happen very much or not be a manageable issue. Uh, Fair Pivani asks, uh, Isaac, looking sharp. Thank you. Uh, What are the odds of finding alien intelligence being artificial instead of organic? Um, Did we already release our AI aliens episode? I think we did. Um, I lose track of what episodes came out sometimes, what's the ones that are busy being created um i would tend to think that if you were meeting something face to face for the first time that was alien the only reason it wouldn't be a machine of some sort would be because they decided you know that they just thought it was appropriate to meet you in person in the flesh they might not have flesh of course but by and large you'd expect the vanguard of almost any civilization to be automated because that means you're not risking anybody um and uh you know, you're far away from home in a case like that. You really do not want your vanguard of detection, and scouting being done by uh, brave loners like Lois and Clark, because uh, well, you know, as many explorers from the Age of Sail could testify, if they had survived, um, that could be very dangerous. So, I would tend to think that, by and large, you would use automation as your vanguard and follow that up with uh, other things. Um, Nicholas, uh, thank you very much. Uh, with the waste and trip with the way centrifugal force works, wouldn't the cone-shaped habitats like on Pluto have uneven gravity as the circumference people would walk around on is moving slower toward the small end? Yeah, um, when you do one of those bowl-shaped uh, habitats where you're spinning around, uh, your gravity is not going to be consistent throughout in terms of strength. What you're doing is putting a curve in place on it so that the, the direction stays pointed that way, and even then you might need to do some tearing. You've got a bottom that is, you know, down towards your feet. That's the goal on that one. Uh, you have to angle the the spinning object that way. You know, assuming all you can keep the strength, you know, the same throughout the entirety of the thing, uh, and you have it pointing right out at uh, away from the axis on the two thing too. But if you're trying to spin a ball around on top of gravity. Then yes, you're going to have slightly different gravity, and that's one of the reasons we go for that ball shape is that it uh, uh, is really more like a vase, to be honest. Uh, very skinny narrow we usually show it as a bit of a wide bowl but it's more like a um, you know like a vase but yeah you're not going to have perfectly uh, even gravity strength there and you're mostly going to be focusing on doing a lot of terracing on the landscape so that you can keep it keep it flat enough so that down on a piece of land float uh, standing on top of it is actually pointing down um not a perfect solution but it's probably good enough, it depends on size too. A thing to remember when we talk about centrifugal force and Coriolis force on these habitats and people say, it's not going to be quite right, is it? You say, well, we have that on Earth, Uh, there is a a pretty powerful amount of centrifugal force on Earth, and scale helps, but uh, it doesn't really you know, feel that much. You say, gravity points down on Earth. No, in most cases it does not actually point straight down. It's just not as much as we tend to notice. It's also not the same in all places. Gravity on the equator at a high altitude or at the poles, it will point different directions to some degree and be a little bit stronger or weaker. And not by a trivial amount. Not enough for us to notice, but it not so we acquire really advanced gear to detect. Um, <clears throat> Dave Marks asks If the Neuralink thing from Elon Musk only cost $1,000, would you get it? Not in its current format. <laughs> Uh, I approve of technology, uh, I like to see technology getting improved, I like to see uh, people occasionally experiment with it, but there's always people willing to be that ones taking the risk, and I'm more than happy to let them do that if they want. For my part, uh, I would really want to wait till it was on like the second generation before it had uh, occasion to happen. Um, but uh, it's good to be doing research on that subject, but it's not really a cost issue uh, at this time, it's more of a, what's it giving you and uh, does it work and is it safe. Uh, Horsehead Productions asks, loved your Quiet Revolutions video, thank you, where you compared current versus future lifestyles. Any chance of a continuation? Probably. Um, I did like doing that episode. And The thing is, a couple of times I decided to uh, do a continuation of it in kind of a specified thing like uh, education or um, uh, automated jobs, but I feel like there's probably uh, those particular topics turned out to be a lot harder to write in a decent way than I thought they were going to be, so... We'll get around to doing it probably at some point, but um, I'm not sure what the t- – should I do it like a part two or a focus in, and that's always an issue on these episodes. Is uh, I don't really like to remake episodes, I prefer to either extend them or pick a particular topic that was inside that and you expand on that, and I'm not sure which one I want to do with that yet. Um, <clears throat> Blake Johnson asks, hey Isaac, I would love to know, what do you think of the first thing you would do following a confirmed and credible detection of an alien civilization, say a Dyson Swarm or other megastructure? Hmm, I guess it would depend on the context. If we picked up a, a Dyson Swarm um, in say Andromeda, the Andromeda Galaxy, I would probably say, oh, right, life's not that common, but there we go, we got a bit of a time scale for that. And I'd say that's a little bit improbable, but not too particularly improbable because having one civilization pop up in a couple million year window of us that was on par with us technologically would not be that big of a deal. But if I just saw a single lone Dyson swarm by itself and it was closer to home, like it was just within a few thousand light years, like Tabby's star, um, I wouldn't assume it was real. But if it was, I'd start assuming that there was some really huge missing chunk of of our view of science and, and, and reality that we were off about. Because it would just be too improbable for something like that to pop up this close and for us not to have seen that kind of Dyson Dilemma expansion wave somewhere else in the universe. Um we'll take a couple more questions before we go to break. Um, Matt will be masked. Your Skyhook video is getting a lot of renewed interest. Would you ever like to revisit it? Probably not. I mean, well, we're going to be talking about Skyhooks a little bit in the, uh, the Moon episode coming up, Industrial Complex. That's uh, early January as well and would follow it up with Moon Crater Cities a couple weeks later. Um, but, uh, I know Kozak just recently did a video on that, and that's the source of that renewed interest, and I'm very glad to see that starting to tick off. I uh, occasionally feel bad that I called it episode Skyhooks instead of Rotovators because they do get called Skyhooks occasionally, but Rotovator was the normal term, so I just happen to like Skyhooks better, so the nice that, that got popularized. Um, but they just did a video on it, it was a good video, and we've done a video on it, and there's not too much more to talk about this time, so. Uh, Ryakin asks, Isaac, what's your favorite video game? Hmm. I mean, it, it changes over the years. I suppose Alpha Centauri was one of my favorite video games. Populous, uh, way back in the day on uh, Super Nintendo was a very big favorite of mine. Sim City also way back in the day. Um, I've been playing a lot of Simios Railroads of late, but uh, it it varies. You know, I, you get interested in a game and uh, it either gets boring to you or becomes a classic you revisit every so often. Uh, sadly, I don't have much time to play video games anymore. Life's been busy. Uh, Duncan Wood asks, would you consider doing a video on possible government structures on the future? That's always a tricky one because I I don't like to bring politics into the channel. Um, I don't mind raising the points uh, that people can be asking themselves a question on, but like uh, we had uh, UBI, uh, Universal Basic Income, as one of the ones was doing well on a poll over on Patreon not that long back, and I was kind of keeping my fingers crossed that wouldn't come in number one and it didn't just because... Well, that'd be a, that's a topic to certainly discuss in terms of post scarcity civilizations or automation. It's just such a charged topic right now that's hard to actually get to cover it. And folks will often be coming in either with a. Um, either they've already liked it or they already hate it. And uh, I don't really like to hit topics where people have a, a preset viewpoint on it. And I don't like to try to say which view I have on something like that either. It's more of a let's look at the pros and cons of this basic theory and think about it. You know, if you're coming up with all good or all bad, you're probably not thinking through enough. Look at the ups, look at the downs. Um and maybe we might do that with possible government structures of the future, but if we were to do something like that, it would probably be more like how would you run a democracy across um you know a hundred star systems without fashion like communication. It is something like that even possible. Uh um let's go ahead and go to break real quick and we'll see you in a couple of minutes. So we're going to take a quick break so everyone, myself included, can grab a drink and a snack. And we'll do a few updates and announcements while we're taking this pause. It's also a great chance to get some questions in for the second half of our show today. First up, you've probably noticed we've had some extra episodes of late, mostly in our Alien civilization series, and if you're curious, I'm planning to try to make sure we have at least 5 episodes each month from this point on, plus our livestream, as opposed to our usual 4 a month or 5 a month if it happens to have 5 Thursdays in it. In general that extra episode or episodes will be coming out first on Nebula, our streaming service as an early release, then come out on YouTube and our other locations like SoundCloud and iTunes a couple months later. Most of our content on Nebula will be early releases, but we also have some Nebula exclusives such as our new Coexistence with Aliens series, which are not intended to be broadcast on YouTube for the foreseeable future, same as our audio-only content that's exclusive to SoundCloud and iTunes. Our regular Thursday episodes will, of course, continue to premiere on YouTube. The bonus episodes from earlier this year were normally done on short notice if the mood took me and I had some free time, and the entire Nebula project is essentially an experiment though one doing very well, and we had a surge in episode production to help that out and to make sure there was some content made just for it so folks didn't feel like it was just for early releases. At the same time it was important to me that none of that came at the expense of quantity or quality of our regular weekly show. And it took me a few months of using it to figure out how best to do that, at least for now. Speaking of quantity and quality, I want to take a quick moment to thank our editing and graphics volunteers on the show. Those editors have been instrumental in permitting me to increase episode output, and in my opinion, quality has improved a lot thanks to them too, and video quality even more so thanks to the folks that volunteer time animating for the show. We mostly use stock footage, but many of the things we discuss have few quality images or animations showing them and often none at all, and there's many topics we haven't been able to do episodes for just because I felt they needed visuals but none existed, and some of those have gotten done the last couple years because of those animators volunteering their time, and they don't get thanked enough, especially as analytics show only about half the audience sticks around for the credit roll at the end of the episodes. If you're interested in volunteering your time, incidentally, and have some experience with graphics and animation, I'm always grateful for help, and especially with that. And I occasionally get messaged by folks who wonder what the process is for doing that, and it's basically just to send me a note saying you want to volunteer. I'm usually easiest to reach on my Facebook page or at the channel email, isaac.arthur.youtube at gmail.com. That's U T U B E, incidentally. The same pretty much applies to moderating on any of our groups, though in that case it's best just to message one of the admins, as while I frequent our social media a lot to chat, I try not to micromanage administrating that. Once again I'd like to thank all those volunteers for their time and for their friendship too, and thanks everyone for showing up today. With that said, let's get back to the show. And we're back. Uh, Freight Container asks, how do you imagine future architecture being like? Like say in an O'Neill Cylinder would you have individual housing like depicted in artist de- uh, depictions, or a common area in military-like barracks? Um, you know, trying to predict architectural is not much easier than trying to predict fashion. Um, in architecture, there's usually—I uh, can't remember—it's uh, there's a um, approach to architecture that says that uh, that um, beauty follows function. Basically, What you make that looks nice, uh, if it looks if it works, then people think it looks good looking. But even then, trying to actually predict what architecture will look like is so hard because it, it has to do with what people find pleasant at the time. For instance, if you had a civilization that was Made up completely of uploaded mines, then the only type of actual architecture you'd expect to see is gigantic computer stacks, the supporting facilities, and then whatever na- nature preserves they felt like keeping around. Um, alternatively, if everybody was uh, living inside clone, you know, big tanks and vats, matrix style, to watch uh, VR and live in VR, then you'd expect they'd probably go for a very concentrated uh, setup too. Although on the same hand, they might go for a very distributed one because they didn't mind the lag time if, if it was uh, letting them avoid vulnerability. Because you think about it, uh, if you got a bunch of people crammed into tanks, that's a very vulnerable location. Like a warehouse they can blow up full of people. Um, <clears throat> we are doing an episode, uh, Life Onboard uh, an O'Neill Cylinder that was a uh, most recent poll winner. That should be coming out in late January. I think that's the last episode of January. Um, and we'll probably try to look at that a little bit more there. I think, though, there might be, I mean, it would depend on what the O'Neill Sword is like. If people are going for suburban happiness, they might be content to spread out, to set their O'Neill Sona up like that. They might go rural, and basically you have a house inside a, a nature preserve, and a lot of that depends on how good your automation is to build the stuff. Or you might be more garden parks and city kind of set up inside one, where all your you know food production is done in, in you know, space farms outside of the thing. Because you can do those much cheaper, you know it doesn't require nearly as much uh, structural strength support redundancy, etc. Uh, to do a hydroponics farm is the place where people live. You might have individual houses that had airlocks and basements in them that could act as uh, you know almost as uh, like a life pod, uh, or you might have um, large uh, you know habitation stacks where everybody lived inside those, and those were secondarily sealed off so that there was a depressurization to the hull like a catastrophic one from an explosion that everyone would be uh, safe inside there until repairs could be done, and it's kind of hard to say, but we'll look at that more in Life On Board and Neo Cylinder in January, once I write the script up. Uh, Eugenia Dandis asks, with space exploration, do you think new jobs and areas of study will emerge? Oh, sure. Um, You know, Xenobiology would be the most obvious one. I think we were just talking on the break about uh, the new Coexistence with Aliens series and uh, the first episode that is Xenopsychology we don't have the aliens right now to do psychology on, but that would be a big one if we ever encountered them. Xenobotany. Uh, um, and, you know, we could say that, you know, Xeno something or other, a person could never be an expert on all the various, in, you know, other alien lives, all of which would be much different than any given life form here on Earth was from each other. And even now, people have to specialize quite a lot. So you probably wouldn't be, you might get a degree in, I don't think you'd actually ever get a degree in something like Zeno psychology. You'd more likely get a degree in psychology, of Syrians or something like that or of uh, Aldobarians or Orions, same for botany, you'd you'd be getting your specialization in in Martian agriculture Um, because there really wouldn't be that much overlap. The psychology would be very different and where there was an overlap it would probably be applicable to Earth too. All right. uh, as to new jobs there, there are so many, asteroid miner, um, space habitat restore, post new cleans toilets on space station that won't use robots for it, uh, across the board. If people are there, you have uh, a growing economy there, I would think. Um, at Aiden K. Season ADS asks, wouldn't time dilation be a huge thing for space travelers? Yes, uh, at least for those moving at relativistic speeds. We shouldn't assume space travelers would always be moving at relativistic speeds much. In interplanetary contexts, you would rarely even get up to 0.1c, probably not even that fast inside a solar system. And the relativistic dilation for that is enough that if you were doing a lot, you need to have something come in and correct your clocks, which you'd probably do automatically with a computer. The people themselves would barely even notice the time dilation for that because uh, it grows very quickly. You have to get up to over half the speed of light before time slows down to half its current speed. And I don't know if you'd ever really build ships like that other than for intergalactic colonization. As to uh, something would be like losing a tenth of your time, where you're only, um, you know, you you experienced uh, one minute for every ten minutes that passed. You have to be up to what ninety nine point nine five percent of speed light, something like that, before that would happen. And I don't know if you would ever do that, uh, even for intergalactic travel. So it could be an issue, though. The thing isn't so much would time dilation be an issue; is what happens with all that time that you're spending traveling between places, where You know, that last time you were in the system was a couple of centuries ago. And if you think about that in this kind of context, uh, civilization changed a lot faster than it used to. But if I were to sail a ship away um, from 18th century England uh, to, say, Alpha Centauri and come back, when I get back to my trip, I don't think, you know, London of 1800 looks very much like London of 2019. I don't think that uh, New York of 1800 looks at all like New York of 2019. So there will be that kind of effect on those things. And we'll be looking at more in our last episode for the year, interstellar civilizations in time, uh, which is the reason I ended up doing the time travel episode after that, though, is because that will factor in too. And we'll talk about some of those issues in that episode, uh, those two episodes, I should say. Generic (laughs) Slubass, interesting name. Are there any tropes in science fiction that just completely ruin the story for you? If so, why? You know, tropes and cliches exist for a reason um, most of the time they are very good ones to have in there but it's, it's not so much what trope they're using or what cliche they're using it's how they use it uh, I'll give you an example a very common one in, in fiction is to use a, a young farm boy who gets a sword and is actually a prince or something like that uh, and he'll typically meet a, somebody sagacious, a man or a woman a Gandalf-like figure or a Tom Maitland if you know Robert Jordan's material who knows a lot more about the world and the purpose of that cliché is to have somebody who knows nothing about the world, e.g. the farm boy who lived off in a rural area, and uh, have someone who knows an awful lot about the world who's going to be talking to you about it, because of course that not talking to that character about it, it's talking to you, the audience, about it. So it feels a more natural way to do exposition on that world. So that's an example of a cliché that is good to include in most stories and why we see that so much. Um, <clears throat> Generally, I don't like strawmans or overly simplified villains in in fiction. And, uh, you know, it's not to say I I like nothing but gray and black morality in stories, but I I generally prefer a a three-dimensional, you know, characters, including the bad guys. And I would like plots that are actually consistent. But again, that has nothing to do with what cliches you're using, uh, what tropes you're using. That is just one of those examples where there there are some that are way overused. For instance, like zombies, that's become its own subgenre at this point, or vampires. Um, you know, or the cowboy western style uh, science fiction where they land on a very pioneer world and they all walk around with laser pistols on their hips. I say so that can get kind of old, but they're, they're tropes for a reason, and it's nice to see them shaken up. But a lot of times the cliches make for some of the best stories, anyway. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, if, if you're doing writing, don't hesitate to use a cliche, just be careful how you use the cliche. Uh, Sooth and scientists asks, what do you think housing on spacestead space dead habitats will be like? Mansions, apartments? Uh, that kind of goes back to what we say with our neocylinders, that probably vary a lot. Uh, you know, a, a thing we say about the future on these is for we'll say, what would it be like living inside a Dyson swarm, or what kind of cultures were involved, I'll say, I don't know. And what I usually mean by that is, besides the fact that I, I generally don't know, is that I would expect there to be pretty much everything in play. If it was sane and rational, it's likely to exist somewhere, and it doesn't have to be all that sane and rational either. Because if you live in a very big civilization, you can have temporary societies that are always in a state of collapse. And uh, if you're in a post-scarcity civilization, uh, your ideologies or life approaches do not actually have to be all that practical to operate. So you'd expect to see almost everything, and I think the same would apply for things like housing or fashion. Um, but it just kind of depends on what kind of lifestyle a person enjoys living. I'm a rural kid. I, I think of myself and living in the city for the year I'm at because I live in a village of less than 2,000 people. Uh, I have to drive almost a mile to see a horse. And uh, yet, you know, for most people, that would be very rural. Uh, so, to me, the idea of living in, um, you know, a kind of a classic skyscraper, not really a pleasant idea. Not bad. I mean, I've been inside them, they're beautiful to look around at, but uh, not my ideal. On the other hand, uh, somebody who's very used to that and prefers that might find my general idea of having a cabin in the woods as, as horrifying. You know, it just depends on what a person's tastes are. And uh, those tastes will mutate with time for us, but at the same time, you'd expect to see a wider divergence pop up with them too. Uh, Gen X asks, "What's the worst sci-fi movie you have seen in regards to totally messing up science?" Oh my, there are so many. I hate to pick on folks. They're the uh, Raspberry Awards. Uh, Most of the winners for those for science fiction are good ones. Planet Nine from Outer Space was one of those movies that's so so bad it's good. It's a good example of that. Uh, Classic, if you want to say classic, from the uh, fifties or sixties. Battlefield Earth is notoriously bad, like that. Um, Let's see, you know, if you pick on science fiction movies for how badly they mess up the science, you're you're going to be down to like one out of twenty movies, maybe. (laughs) And most of those would be because they didn't even cover the cover yet. You know, if you pick on Star Wars for its science, that, that's that's probably a waste of time. Um, hmm. Once it was just really bad. Yeah, it's it's not a movie, but I was thinking of the Twin Dilemma. It's the uh, first episode of uh, Doctor Who's uh, sixth uh, Doctor, um, Colin Colin Baker. Not, not sorry, not Colin Baker. I can't remember last name at the moment. Uh, but uh, Doctor Number Six, and uh, they—they had—they uh, were trying to move plants around, and they—they they basically botched the entire concept of Newtonian mechanics and gravity. Uh, not a great episode of that show. Um, let's see. Although one tries not to focus too much on the science and Doctor Who, classic or new stuff either. Um, Jared Houston asks: So, in the past two years, we have seen two interstellar objects. What are the chances that we are headed in a comet in? We are headed in a comet interstellar cloud. Headed into, we do actually happen to be at the edge of the local bubble, um, the the group of stars that we kind of emerged together with, uh, formed with, and those are always traveling through other folks. And you would expect to see more such objects when you're passing through somebody else. But uh, I don't think that uh, we should assume that this is an atypical amount of stuff. We need to get a better idea how often ejections take place from solar systems, and if we can, then we can go ahead and map out what the probability of one passing through our system is right now. But when you hear about things like a Muamua or this new one, don't think of that as a real new anomaly. Think of that as something that we're finally good enough at detecting stuff to be able to see. And quite probably, you know, it's it's a good coincidence that it moves close to the sun. But I would be surprised if hundreds of such objects weren't moving through the outer system with a Kuiper belt, uh, you know, in a given lifetime. Um, we just see the ones that get really close to the sun and are big enough for us to notice them if we happen to be looking in their direction at the time. So, um, Again, we're getting better at detecting stuff and that's that's more or less the reason why we're seeing these objects. Whether or not there'll be an uptick in something like that, when I say we're moving into a new area of the galaxy or have moved out of a previous one, these are things that happen over, you know, not quite geological, but very long timelines along with the human civilization as a rule. And so you. It's not really a new huge thing that's happening right now. Um one SE thirty nineteen asks, Can you do an episode on future land transportation? Um Yeah, I shouldn't even say it, but I was just thinking of that call that uh, I can't remember what's called, the one that uh Tesla made that Elon Musk busted up with a glass metal ball. Um, hmm. What would we be driving? I One would guess that we'd probably see a, a conversion over, depending on how electricity works. If you get better batteries, I mean significantly better batteries, then you'd probably expect to see um, either in terms of their, how long we can charge them up or how densely we can store power in them uh, or how efficiently we can transfer it into them you'd probably start to see electric cars. On the other hand, if we got something like fusion tomorrow, cheap, cheap fusion, you'd probably actually continue to see something like gasoline being used because you could then suck the stuff out of the air and make it instead. And chemicals are a very nice type of uh, power supply. Um, so in terms of what we'd actually be driving around though, I'd be kind of curious what the default layout would become of most vehicles in a civilization where automated cars, self-driving cars had been become the norm. Would you start seeing more of a limousine-like setup but minus that front cockpit? Would you see something more like a you know, a comfortable room that you just got into and then it dinged you when you arrived at your destination? Um, there are probably going to be a lot of changes in how things are set up um, in terms of your basic vehicle outlay in times to come. And I mean, we've seen that to some degree. When I was a kid, you, you had the station wagon starting to go out of, out of style in favor of the minivan. And then you have the SUV pop-up not long after that as kind of replacing that. And so you do get these kind of evolving changes uh, already. But uh, something like self-driving cars or things that would change around the power supply for the engine, that's going to be the big ones. I I think we would have problems anticipating what those would look like, though. Um, MMX asks, how could politics effectively continue in O'Neill cylinders with populations of billions and trillions? As a rule, an O'Neill cylinder wouldn't have a population of a billion people. I mean, you could potentially cram that many people into one if you were bringing your food in from elsewhere. But to make a, a single habitat that was of that kind of scale, you'd be looking at something that was either, if it was an O'Neill Sona, it was radius, was something like a topopolis, which we'll have to look at sometime in the near future. Uh, or you'd be looking at some kind of interconnected, you know, um, collection of them, where several of them were kind of attached to a thin network. Or you'd be looking at something with a much stronger, wider hole, like a bishop ring, or a McKendree cylinder. Um, as to how that would affect populations, uh, if we're talking about like onboard an individual one, I mean, your default O'Neill cylinder would probably be something like a county government these days, where you had somewhere between 10,000 to a million people living inside one. Uh, whereas these, you could easily, of course, have collections of those, where are like, there's uh, 100 O'Neill cylinders in this new state, we'll call it um, Space Topia. So the fifty-fourth state is Spacetopia, and it has composed of 100 or cylinders, either effectively all county governments, and of course you might have to expand over time so that there was a nation of uh, you know a, a, a hundred such states, and of course you have to keep scaling it up because you're going to eventually start hitting billions and trillions of people, but that would probably be your um, your local state federal kind of you know confederation type of setup would be along those lines. What is the average habitat size, and that becomes kind of your your median that things would flow around for that subdivision. And inside that, you might have you know individual bits too. A county government, for instance, here is broken up into we think we have twenty-seven townships in Ashtabula and uh, seven villages and three cities, and uh, those each have their own government and different types of governments. Um, and so you could see stuff like that inside an O'Neill cylinder too. So it just depends on what kind of setup people feel like going with. That might be kind of interesting to see, but it might get kind of boring for folks too. I happen to find that sort of thing very fascinating, but I'm not sure most people do. <laughs> um. Kimberly Lewis asks, Isaac, what are your thoughts on modern future resource scarcity of important industrial materials like indium or helium? How do we solve these and future shortages? Um, I'm thinking you probably might say iridium, uh, but uh, maybe not. Um within the metals of course that's just find a place that's got a fair amount of them in the asteroid belt or on the moon and mine them up the earth has way more of these things but they tend to be really deep down we'd have problems getting access to though that's our episode for three weeks from now accessing the earth's core in mid-december and um helium though is more problematic because the stuff is incredibly plentiful it's just not plentiful anywhere nearby (laughs) There's the sun, and then your next nearest place, which is kind of hard to get access to, would be the gas giants um and those are kind of hard to access too. but as you get further out in the solar system, you start finding it collected up on places where it does not have really deep gravity well so um since you're probably not going to be in a rush to get that stuff back, you know helium doesn't spoil, and you can build tanks that will hoard it pretty well. You probably actually see your helium mining taking place out in like the Kuiper belt originally um and then moving inward. And that just depends on how good you are at scooping it off of off the gas giants or off the sun too and how much of it you need and of course instance you might have helium as a byproduct of a fusion economy where it's kind of a waste product too uh, Thank you Ramiel. is there a point in technology where monetary transactions become more of a burden than simply providing free access to things hmm um you very rarely buy air, but there is actually still a market for air, and the fact that we don't really buy air that much doesn't mean that nobody provides, you know, we basically our air is a free access, um, but you can buy it for specialty purposes like scuba tanks or, or you know, oxygen for breathing for folks who have, uh, you know, lung problems or things like that, um, and uh, the fact that that is under that kind of a post-scarcity setup um, doesn't mean that... There's no economy that isn't scarce, and we have things we buy all the time right nowadays. Depending on what you're doing, you can have a lot of things that are still scarce, even in a post-scarcity economy. Um, and often, a post-scarcity economy would only be a temporary state. Um, there's there's a difference. when you say post-scarcity, do you mean that there's a relatively a scarcity for stuff, or is it just that they're very wealthy and abundant society? For instance, you could have a vast amount of post scarcity civilization time in the solar system as our population grows, but at some point it does actually reach a point where you have to start saying you can only have so much of this, whereas, like, this amount of sunlight. And then how you go about <clears throat> providing access to that kind of depends on the, the culture. Um, on Mars, you might buy oxygen, for instance, or the moon, you might buy your air. <clears throat> and certainly, if you're farming on one of those places because they have very little nitrogen, you need nitrogen, you're probably going to buy buying that. Here on Earth, it's free. Where I'm at in Ohio, water is cheap as dirt because we live right next to the Great Lake. It's not really a big issue. Even for farming, it's very rarely an issue. Um, you get down to California or the Southwest, obviously a bit of a different story. And of course, people still buy bottled water there too. So it was very really kind of careful with assuming technology is going to suddenly end a given economic system or scarcity issue because that's generally not been how it works out. And when it does, it's usually just that one thing that's suddenly dirt cheap uh, to the point that you don't feel like tracking in. Long distance phone calls. When I was a kid, we had long distance phone calls, and uh, now we don't have long distance phone calls anymore because that's not a scarce item anymore. The ability to send a message back and forth across the planet is very cheap, so we don't really, we still pay for that service, but we pay for it differently, usually. And uh, we've still got time for some more questions, but I'm not seeing any up at the moment. Let me see if I can find some in the chat window. Um, Um... Capital H asks: Is the only way to do starlifting some like process on gas giants, or is your mining Neptune episode? <coughs> see why the mods had problems doing that. Let's score away for me. Closest thing to it. Uh, can we do starlifting on gas giants, or would it be something more like what we do with mining Neptune? Um, the thing about a gas giant is, uh, well, we should start by saying starlifting is done by basically one one process. There are two advantages to it. First, in a star like ours, it's pretty convective, so you can not only strip off the material that's near the top, but uh, the stuff's constantly bubbling around. Your heavier elements do tend to like to go towards the center, but they bubble up. It's it's a bubbling stew pot, right? And so you can scoop metals out of them, not just hydrogen or helium. Uh, second, it's got a huge gravity well, but you have a gigantic power supply right there from that sun. And that's why star lifting, if you can get it walking, would be a very effective way of, of getting resources. Is because it's where ninety nine percent of our sorry ninety eight percent of our solar system's resources are at, and it's where the gigantic power supply is at for lifting those resources away. Something like Jupiter, if you don't have fusion, you have a bit of a problem pulling material off. it. same for Neptune because you you need to have um you need to have um power supply to get these things out of those gravity wells, and it has to be cheaper than the other sources. Um, for the gas giants there's a lot of ways to remove material from them but uh, the question is mostly what method are you using and what are you using for power? And it might be the sun. One way you can do star lifting for something like uh, Jupiter would be to send in a gigantic power beam or flat out laser from the sun to Jupiter to heat it up and blow material off It same as we do with star lifting. Um, or to power whatever it is that is you're using to run a thing like the Neptunian chainsaw we discussed in colonizing Neptune. And uh, that's one of those things where yeah, those would usually be the last things you access, um, but not necessarily. Uh, like with starlifting might be something you started very early on just because it turned out to be more economical for instance, um, which under some circumstances it might be. Uh, Prova Prova asks, is there a phenomenon which would threaten or damage a Dyson sphere? Well, a Dyson Sphere, certainly, but a Dyson Swarm, uh, which I'm assuming you mean in this context, uh, those are actually a lot tougher than people would tend to think. Uh, it's very hard to just eliminate one of those, and um, it's also very hard to eliminate one in a way that would allow you to do that without a, a retrib- retributive strike, right? Uh, preemptive strikes, full strike, the, those are only a good idea where you can either completely eliminate the ability to retaliate, or can almost do so so that you're not being you know crippled yourself. And, uh, every time I try to think about a way to destroy one, uh, with technology that's relatively on par of that, that civilization, I, 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 can never quite find a way that you could do that without, uh, getting struck back. Um, but, uh, they are vulnerable to, uh, things like a massive Kessler debris, sim, uh, massive Kessler syndrome debris of attack that would be solar system wide. Um, not the easiest thing in the world to do, but yeah, you can damage one. Um, you could set the star off, uh. There's a good example. I mentioned Dennis E. Taylor earlier. Um, in one of his books, there's a, without being too spoiler-tastic about it, uh, they managed to cause a supernova by um, having two, you know, neoplanet-sized objects slam into the poles of a star simultaneously and compress it, so it supernova. And that's a that's a trick you could use to do something like that. That would be very hard to block. Um, and it's kind of like when we discussed in uh, weaponizing black holes. You could do things like that to potentially set a star off. Even then, though, you probably would not get the entire civilization, even though you think a supernova, wow, that would wipe out a solar system. Well, not so much. Um, you know, like if, if our sun went supernova, Jupiter would still be around afterwards. Man, our sun's not massive enough naturally to naturally go supernova. Um, and so a classic supernova would not get rid of something like our, our Jupiter and our own sun just doesn't have that much energy. Um, and if you talk about like habitats in the Kuiper Belt that were buried under a mile of ice, yeah, they'd still be around. So... Yeah, they could easily bunker up their ability to strike back at you, and of course it's nice to be able to blow your enemy up, um, but usually the thing preventing you from doing that if you really don't like them is that they're going to blow you up and return. So, you yeah, know, weapons you could use to take out a Dyson swarm, but uh, unless you can do it in a way that prevents them from returning the favor, they, 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 I've come with very many of those that would seem to allow that option. Um, <clears throat> which would we'll go into the fully paradox question of, you know, do people not build these things so they won't be too centralized? and uh possibly but it doesn't really seem like that would be enough to prevent that from uh from from people from building that uh asks if the hyperloop cannot happen because the cost of having everything depressurized uh, that that would usually be a make thing cheaper design thing but uh what about having the air in the loop move in the direction of the hyperloop train it would reduce the train's air friction even though there would be friction between the air and the tunnel walls if the energy is cheap enough and the demand is high speed transport rises, do you think there's a fairly good chance of happening? Now, um, wind tunnels, we get those inside our tunnels right now when we build these, uh, you know, we build a tunnel through a mountain or a city already be pretty significant problem. And that's just being caused by the local wind of, you know, maybe 10, 15 miles an hour or the vehicles themselves moving the air through um there is friction when you have wind going down the material when you have a fluid uh in fluid dynamics there's a limit as to how fast you can pump fluids through a pipe you start trying to bring those fluids up to supersonic speeds which is the idea behind something like a hyperloop is to move these things at supersonic speeds you start getting some very severe issues you're effectively inside a turbine at that point in time like on a jet um it's doable but i, I mean i think that that just in general, the amount of strain and stress you'd be putting on a thing would be way, way more. And the energy cost for keeping that air moving way, way more than to depressurize it. And I'm not sure why, uh, why you wouldn't be able to depressurize one of these tubes. It's worth keeping in mind that while the Hyperloop has a number, well, forget about the Hyperloop for the moment, a vacuum train or a neo vacuum train. The Hyperloop is an example of a neo vacuum train. This is not a new concept. Um, they have some engineering issues, but there are issues in terms of being economically effective and uh, you know not having to over-engineer to the point where it becomes too expensive. Um, I've heard a lot of objections to the Hyperloop that were based on nonsense, even from reputable figures uh, or semi-reputable figures, and then there are some legitimate objections too. But yes, we can depressurize a tube. <laughs> we also overpressurize them too. Um, that to me again would be one of those examples where you just want to get better at your actual engineering in terms of you know, using the, uh, trying to keep it cheap, that's the big thing. How do you make this thing cheap and um, that's one of those things where I have to see whether or not it ever gets engineered to do that. And you, you have to face it off against the idea that um, these kind of bullet train setups are good for when you try to move people between two cities. They're not so good for what you might call more of a rural road environment. And they're not very good if you're doing a lot of remote work. So you've got a, a, a high cost versus a potentially dropping need in some places to actually have such a thing. And so they'll get built when the cost, uh, well, when the supply and the demand equal out, so we'll put it that way. Uh, hopefully that will be something we get to see in our lifetimes, but I think it'll be a while before it's more than you know speculable in a few locations. But that was true for normal trains too. Uh, Levy Hinky asks, are there any current materials that humanity has developed that have grabbed your attention? Um, hmm. <laughs> I'd say the one that really grabbed my attention all the years was carbon nanotubes and graphene. Um, probably not too surprising considering that we've, uh, that we've got, um, a big, uh, fondness of rotating habitats and mega structures on this channel, things that let us build very big ones are always a favorite. I like O'Neill Cylinders but my ideal rotating habitat is, well not quite the ring board, I'd really like to build what's called a uh, Bishop, not a Bishop Ring, that too, but uh, a orb, uh, Banks Orbital, which is one where it's about uh, 1.7 kilometers in either radius or diameter, and it has a natural sun daylight cycle, and it's uh, you know, several hundred dollars worth of area. And um, you don't need internal lighting for that. You just cock the thing at a bit of an angle so the sun naturally lights it up on a 24-hour schedule. Um, And you can't build something like that with graphene, for instance. But the stronger materials, I like them not so much because I find them all that interesting themselves. I find things we could build out of them rather interesting. Okay. We'll go ahead and wrap up right there for the day. And um, I'm sure everyone's seen the schedule as we've been going along. This week on Thursday, we'll have um, uh, Gods and Monsters, uh, space as Lovecraft envisioned it. And then we'll start December off with Welcome to the Galactic Community and um, we'll see you on Thursday. So that wraps up today's livestream Q&A, if you had a question we didn't get to or another came to mind, feel free to put that in the comments on the video and I'll be back later this evening to answer them. You can also pop into our Facebook group, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, to discuss topics with like-minded individuals, or any of our other forums. Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you Thursday.